0: This was about as bizarre and as
1: easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top,
0: top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt
1: one hundred ninety two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue and you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you want to scale up, maybe you want to sell, maybe you want to bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you want to pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder Score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire and then you're gonna get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. Up next is Jay Steinfeld of Blinds.com. Started his business with a $3,000 investment and built it up to a $100 million company. I think you're going to like this interview. talks about the pros and cons of picking a niche or niche if you're from the South. Uh, When to pick your management team, which I thought was really interesting. You know, the problem with being in a small niche is both – blessing and a curse. He talks a little bit about that. Um, He talks a little bit about how he used the acquisition strategy and how he picked up companies for, in many cases, pennies on the dollar. So listen listen for that. One of the things I think you'll find really interesting is his discussion about taking on a private equity investor. And listen for his definition of participation um, and how that can have a material impact on the value you take away from your business. Lots of great stuff here in this wide-ranging interview with Jay Steinfeld. Enjoy. Jay Steinfeld, welcome to to Cell Radio.
0: It's great to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing this. I mean, I've heard the blinds.com story, uh, through many, many different forums and it's great to actually put a sort of a voice to a name at the very least. You're, you're a, you're a famous entrepreneur who has, has achieved a lot. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you got into the blinds business.
0: Well, that was kind of a fluke. I had just been fired from a VP of finance job and it wasn't doing anything. My wife was in the blinds business for a couple of years. And I figured, why not? And so I opened up a second store. So she had the store in Houston. I had one in a suburb of Houston. And that's where it started almost 30 years ago. Wow.
1: And so maybe talk about the transition from a physical bricks and mortar store to selling blinds online.
0: Uh, The funny thing is that when... I got out of having a brick and mortar retail store, which was grueling. I was working six days a week, early, late at night, coming home maybe at nine o'clock at night and doing the paperwork on Sundays. I said, never again will I have a store. And now with Home Depot, we have 2000 stores, (laughs) but that's a good thing.
1: It is. So you've kind of gone back to your your roots. But tell me about the transition from physical stores to, to online.
0: Well, I went in 1987 in the store. And in 1993, this is the year before Amazon started, I had heard about the Internet and was just wondering what it was. I didn't even know what email was. There was no broadband. Cell phones were huge. That's 1,500 baud modems we were using, and I just went into the idea that I wanted to experiment with marketing and used it as a brochure for my for my store just to try to generate prospects, leads, appointments. So I got conversant with it and thought uh, in 1993 that was a good way to for $1,500. I might add. Uh, to generate more prospects. Because an ad in the Houston Chronicle cost at least that much. So I did that for two or three years and I wasn't even selling online. And I thought, well, maybe you can sell things. There's this company, Amazon, that's selling books. So I'm going to see if I can sell blinds. Everybody thought I was an idiot. No, you could never sell blinds online. People can't see them. People can't touch them. They have to install them themselves, measure themselves, so there's no way this is going to work. Well, I did it anyway, and in 1996, for $3,000, and that $1,503,000 was the only money I ever put into into the business of my own, I started selling maybe one sale a day while I kept my store. So I was in my store going to people's homes to sell blinds, and and I was a shop at home decorator, perfect for for a CPA, which I never told people I was a CPA. I mean, who wants a CPA to design blinds and draperies in their home? But it it was it was working, because it was part time between other my other appointments. So they'd call into the store, and they'd say, uh, no, all of our shop our uh, uh, customer service representatives are busy. Of course, it was just me. So they'd call me in my car I'd pull off the side of the road, have my big cell phone, call them back, say, hi, I'm Jay in customer service. And how can I help you? And that's how it started with my order pad and calculator on the front seat of my van in between appointments. And uh, at some point I was doing as much online as I was in my store, which was a million and a half dollars a year with two employees at the time. And then I thought, wow, this is kind of fun, and it's much easier than working seven days a week in the heat. And decided I would just go full-time online in the, in the blinds business.
1: Uh, what kind of margins is, are there in selling blinds? I mean, is it one of those very low-margin businesses? I would, I mean, my, my assumption is that it is, but I have no idea.
0: It's uh, – I can't really being with a public company talking about margins is really something I have to be careful about. I've oh, been right. told okay. it's a it's a low margin business, but our our margins are are healthy and they we're we're increasing them all the time. Got it. Got it. Okay.
1: So you get this thing up to a million and a half where you've got a store with a million and a half in revenue and you've got just two employees. You're generating a million and a half through online and hardly um, Yeah. <laughs> yeah and not the you know working Saturdays and, and Sundays as you think back to the the arc of the the story so from sort of you know 1996 now I guess we're into to 2014 when you get acquired to Home Depot were there were there one or two what I might call inflection points where kind of as you think about it now with a scotch you know in front of a fireplace that were big moments for your company
0: do, do you think Back and, and can you identify one or two of those? I can. We made four acquisitions that were competitors of ours during the years. The first acquisition was at the time when I decided to get out of stores and just go full time online. So that was February of two thousand one. And in two thousand one, we we acquired a company in uh, Saint Augustine, Florida. And that that brought us. They were doing three million, so we were at four and a half. The first, the first year, they had some technology that we didn't have. Our our shopping cart really wasn't even a shopping cart. People had to add up their prices to determine. Literally, they had to add it up and fill in the blank, <laughs> and write it. the name of the product that you wanted to buy in text fields. And then we we tried to develop our own shopping cart, but it was a disaster. So acquiring this other company that had a legitimate shopping cart made it much easier. And we doubled our sales the first year because people could actually buy. And then with the sales of the acquiree, that, that brought us up to about 9 million pretty quickly. The other inflection point was in 2005, when we acquired our second company, And at that time, we had critical mass where I could start hiring C-level people. Because before, we didn't have enough money, we didn't have enough cash flow to do it. And at that point, we were doing 33 million. And at 33 million, it was time to hire a real chief marketing officer, controller, and others. So having that critical mass and having people who are experts more so than I was definitely an inflection point. Each of the other acquisitions we made gave us the opportunity to hire people that before we weren't able to afford. It was the ability to hire really good talent that we couldn't afford before and we didn't have to borrow because we had the revenue. Those were the main drivers of, of being able to accelerate our growth.
1: Great. When you went to acquire the companies that you acquired, how did you value them? How did you structure the deal?
0: These were mostly companies that had kind of topped out and they were either bored or didn't want to do what was required to move themselves to the next level. So we had highly motivated sellers and it, we, we, didn't really come up with what the what was really worth. These companies weren't worth much to anyone other than us. We were successful, we were number one and we could pay just about whatever we wanted because no one else wanted to buy those companies.
1: Why were they so unattractive to anybody else? It was
0: a small market, the blinds business, maybe at the time, $3 billion. So big money wasn't interested in it. The margins were smaller than a lot of other uh, other industries. And it was run mostly by founders. So when you're buying a company, if there's no uh, management and there's just the founder running and you know the founder's gonna be gone, you're taking a big risk when you're buying a company. One of the things we've always done is try to, when when we got to the point where we started thinking about selling, we knew people couldn't, would not spend enough to buy us, at least the amount that we wanted, if they believe that by buying it and I left, they would be left with a company that had no rudder. So you have to make sure you've got the management team. So these didn't have management teams. And we were able to therefore buy them, uh, because... I had the team and it was more of a synergistic buy than getting new capabilities.
1: So people, I mean, you know, on this show, we, we always talk about kind of multiples of revenue or multiples of EBITDA. I mean, when you're acquiring these guys, are you getting close to sort of one times revenue or
0: anything close to that? No, it was much less. Interesting. Yeah, the, in one company, we bought almost in bankruptcy. And this was a company, if we hadn't bought them, they would have just dissolved, owing a lot of money. So that company was very, very tricky and technical, and we needed a lot of really sharp legal advice to get through all the, the trap doors that could have been there. Because you, you were buying the liabilities of the company as well as the assets, I'm assuming. No. No, we just bought the assets.
1: I see difference between an asset and a share sale in that case. Right, we
0: just bought assets, so we we're buying basically a customer list and a uh, revenue stream, and it was out of state, and there were a couple of people that we we brought along, but that was it. So it was really just a customer list and revenue and a, a long history of being in business, but on the verge of of bankruptcy. So being able to get a company that is basically worthless made it an exceptionally good good deal
1: yeah i bet how did you finance the growth of blinds.com i mean did you have private equity involved or or i mean wh- how did you structure that we bootstrapped
0: it almost the whole way it was uh, occasionally we we borrowed money but not that much and from banks just did bank debt the the companies were small enough that we were acquiring and because we bought them at really what we believed were particularly distressed price that we were able to just use our cash or finance the payables in a way where we could assume the debt of the of the seller and within a year we we paid off one and another one it took us a 11 months on another one, so that's within a year. So we never believed we had a lot of risk because we paid a small enough amount and we didn't leverage the company much at all. It wasn't until 2012, two years before we sold that we took on some private equity. And that was from a growth fund and it was just to buy out a couple of our stockholders who were not aligned with us in how the company we wanted to grow the company they wanted dividends or cash distributions so we bought them out we did have a little debt left over from an acquisition we paid that off and we kept some money on the on the balance sheet for growth and we took off some chips and Made a little money, which was awesome because we were able to buy the the uh, get the debt at a valuation that was higher than what we were paying off those other stockholders. So it was accretive. So we ended up with no dilution at all by taking money out, putting more money on the balance sheet, and it was a it was a great opportunity that was orchestrated well.
1: You just exceeded my financial knowledge. Uh, my grade 10 math just exploded. So <laughs> talk to me about how that was accretive. Uh, and maybe if you could explain it to me as if I were as stupid as I actually am. Uh, <laughs> how, how was that accretive? So you had some a little bit of debt. You're bringing on, on some private equity. Who? So I'm assuming they're taking some shares. And so how is that not diluting you?
0: Well, let's say they... Uh, the people that you're paying off, you're paying off at a valuation of one dollar. Okay. But the money that you're taking in is valued at two million. So that's cheaper money. So you're using cheap money to pay off expensive money, and so you end up with no dilution because you got the money cheaper than what you had to pay it off. Got it. And so, who
1: are these shareholders uh, that you mentioned? that you had, how many, like, what was the capital structure before you did the private equity deal?
0: There were probably five or six sort of friends and family. Mm -hmm. And then two of them were looking for, for cash. And we, again, wanted to grow. So they said, here, just here's a number, pay this off and, and you can have our shares. And we did. And what
1: was their number based on? Like, how did they value the business?
0: Uh, You know, you're looking at willing buyer, willing seller. So the actual, how they were thinking about it really didn't matter because what we were able to pay worked within the confines of the structure of how much we were getting a value from the private equity group. And because the private equity group valued our company much higher than what the other company was willing to take money at it was it was it was a good deal the valuation is was not really even how it was valued wasn't wasn't really the point the point was we got it cheaper
1: got it as you know when we do these interviews oftentimes friends and family are are involved and I remember one interview we had recently where uh the woman had had taken I think it was you know like it was a relatively small amount of money in the very early days of the business and so the the the, the family member I think it was in this case actually got, I think a third of the company, which, and she went on to exit at, at sort of, I can't remember something like 30, $38 million or something to that effect. So it was a, it was a, it was a big payday for that family member. I mean, as you look back with hindsight, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs considering sort of doing a bit of a small friends and family round? Do you, do you, do you sort of think about that now and have any sort of advice for folks?
0: the the alignment of purpose and expectations for whether they're viewing this as a long-term play or whether they're wanting cash and expecting payouts, that's really something that needs to be discussed. And if at the beginning, it didn't matter because we were just, we we're just trying to survive. For mm. time, that question is the key question because it it became an untenable situation when people wanted more money and we wanted to grow. And when you're when you've got most people wanting to grow the company and a couple of people who just say no, I don't care about that, you're making this money pay it out. You've got to do something. That is not a sustainable situation. So I think having candid discussions with people as to what their expectations are for the investment Do they believe that the company should be sold as fast as possible? Do they believe that you should wait to get a certain type of payout? Do they want money in the meantime? As we went into different rounds of um, receiving the money, we made it clear to the investors that, look, at this point, we're not paying out anything anymore. So if you want to still be here, we'll either pay you off or be on be involved, but don't expect anything until we sell.
1: And did they have enough votes on the board to override that decision?
0: No. Got it. They
1: didn't. So there you- was
0: there were some arrangements that we had made in advance that made it a lot easier. And without going into the technical stuff, it was. Um, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, we,
1: we've talked about tool, you know, dual classes of shares on the show before. So I'm assuming there was a kind of a voting class of shares and a non-voting. Is that how you yeah. would execute that?
0: Like that We just had some, some prearranged arranged uh, formulas for valuation in the event somebody was going to, to leave. I see. I and see. We, just, we just executed those uh, strike prices.
1: Got it. And were those strike prices, without getting into the details, were they based on a, a multiple of revenue or EBITDA? Like, how would you suggest people, the, what well, would you tie it to?
0: In, in our case, they were fixed because it was something to be negotiated frequently. And we'd already negotiated pretty early. So that was just a number that we could, we could use. So yeah,
1: whatever, 10% of the company is worth a dollar. And, and that's the number. Is the, exactly. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So that was a, it. Was actually a fixed number. So as you as you negotiate with this private equity company that's looking to bring in some money, how does this uh, this misalignment and having to work through this misalignment with uh, friends and family investors? How does that uh, impact your negotiation with the PE firm?
0: I don't believe it had any effect. Uh, they couldn't they couldn't do they couldn't block the deal because of that prearranged situation. So we knew we could just execute on that. and it it actually made our story more believable because it was clear why we were taking the money. Mm. So it that we were growing twenty five percent a year. We were making money. and then we had this situation. we had a little debt. And the fact that we wanted to raise as little as possible, let's just say they wanted um, X, and we wanted fifty percent of x, hmm. even though and they said, "Look, well, we really would like to give you more than that." And we said no, also was was a strong indication that we felt really good about the business because we didn't want to take any more money than we believed we needed to 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 uh, to make good on those three things. taking a little money off, paying off the debt, and buying out the the two stockholders.
1: Got it. I guess what I was curious about was it's, was how well you you got aligned with the private equity investors around exit intent. I mean, the, the private equity deals that I've seen, uh, you know, they're looking to get out uh, with a with a favorable return on their money. You know, usually in a five seven year period. Did you guys have those conversations saying, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna sell in in five to seven years," or like, how did you get aligned around that piece?
0: That's that's again one of the most important things you can do when you're raising money is understanding the alignment. And you, frankly, you'd never really know. You just have to ask a lot of questions what, and, and talk to people that have that have CEOs and investors from other companies where they've invested and find out what happened. And I spent a lot of time talking to other people who have raised money from the fund to make sure that what they said was true it because it, once you get in with with somebody and you're misaligned and remember we were just coming off of that situation uh, and that's what i was afraid of i've heard of ceos being look we know what happens to uh, Uber uber travis he's gone so it's, you read so many stories of ceos thinking what they need to do is take bring on a quote professional CEO and you sign covenants that you may not understand or things may start going a little sideways and then they, they, that triggers some covenants and then they, I mean, then you're screwed. You've got, you've got to just make sure you've got people who you really trust and that seem aligned. So all the questions that we were talking about, of course, valuation is important. You can't say valuation is not important, but other than that, These covenants about alignment and when you're going to sell and there's something called participation, where if you're not selling the company within a certain time frame, that triggers not really a penalty, but for the entrepreneur, it's certainly a penalty. Or if you haven't sold within five years or six years or four years, that you've got to make some payments or the amount of money when you ultimately have to sell is increased not so much by their their percentage, but by this extra provision. So yeah, those things, not only do you discuss it, but they're a, they're an actual written term in your in your contract. So and they're, you- all, they're all negotiable. And we did negotiate that, and the, what we had done was was here's here's a really good uh, tip. If It'll say, well, if you haven't sold it in a certain amount at this dollar amount, then you've got to pay X. We said, all right, that's fine, but let's look at the top side too. What if we sell it for more than that in a shorter period of time? Then we want to cap that provision at a lower number because we shouldn't be penalized and have to pay that extra money if we get a really big number. As it turned out, that's what happened, um, and therefore that provision never even kicked in. So on the participation clause, uh, I would be thinking about how you can put a, a number that, if you exceed, then it doesn't even kick in. That was recommended by one of my other stockholders. It was might have been the single most uh, important suggestion that that investor made in all the years he was there. And he's let me know many times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's run through it. So in a, in a typical PED, they would say, look, you've got to sell, uh, within five years at X price or, you know, you know, you owe us X amount of, you know, X amount of money, this, uh, you know, penalty.
0: Five, we owe you $5 million. Right. So we sell it way beyond that number. Then there's no then it won't kick in at all, because you've exceeded their their expectation. Because even somehow, even if the
1: time frame is more than five years.
0: Uh, there is there's some it's all negotiable. So it, in this case, it was uh, within that five year period, and if it's past that, that I don't believe, as I recall, that provision did apply. But okay. But we company two years after we we uh, took the money from the, the PE firm. Mm-hmm. So that was way ahead of schedule. And we weren't even looking at the time to sell, which is another good tip. If you're building a business of, of consequence, where you're not building it to window dress it, but you're really just trying to build a really great company that's leveraging the bottom line, that's growing at at high compounded rates consistently, and you've got a good management team, even if you don't sell the company, you're doing really well and you're increasing the value, so you're not risking anything. So we always ran the business as if we were not selling it and thought of us more as a public company and building towards the possibility of going public one day. Not that it was a priority to do so, but we wanted to run a company so well that other than Sarbanes-Oxley, that it, was, it was, um, would be viewed by any potential uh, buyer as, wow, these guys are really got a clean company and that provides a lot of confidence and makes it more likely that they'll we'll give you a, a good, great value.
1: I I read that. I was interested in in learning a little bit more about that view of running it as if it were public. I mean, how
0: how did, like... well I can give you some examples of how you do that.
1: Well no, I I I mean I, like I can think of of ways that you would do it uh, technically. I'm wondering how you do it internally to make that digestible for employees because on one hand, you know, they didn't join Home Depot. They joined a nice little company in Texas, with Jay, who walks in the door every day, smiles at them, knows them, like these 150, 175 employees didn't, like they joined your company. And a lot of people would say, I don't want to be part of a public company. I don't want that scrutiny, that 90-day churn. I don't want any of that. I want a, I want a nice, folksy business to join. But, but you convinced them it was a good thing.
0: How did you do that? Well, I convinced... The people, the associates that were working for me to work harder. Is that what you're saying? Or we'll work with
1: with more rigor and and what would be viewed as a public company rigor?
0: Well, what I thought was public company rigor turned out to be naive. Now I know what public company rigor is. So I thought we were running it like a public company, but we really weren't. We were doing things like having a real board with real governance and having to have real board meetings with people who could keep us uh, accountable and and increasing our perspective on whether we were really leveraging and getting the performance. But now that we're we're part of Home Depot, where uh, the scrutiny is enhanced, to say the least. Uh, We've actually become a better company now than we were then because of that. But if we have the mindset that we always want to get better and we don't want anything sloppy and we want our records clean and we want good uh, accountability by everybody by doing all best practices, you're just going to have a better company, period. And any company that's growing that's gonna maintain its success just has to get better at everything. So it wasn't so much that it was being run like a public company. It was being run like a company that has to get better in order to succeed and stay relevant. And then we were more more obvious things like getting outside board members, changing to a a big four uh, audit firm, switching to Silicon Valley Bank, instead of some local banks. The types of things that anybody who is looking at the company would say, yes, it looks like they have, they have associated themselves with the right people who will provide the right governance and oversight. That's really more what I mean by pressing us to uh, squeeze out a penny here and there.
1: Got it. How did you, uh, like, talk about the triggering event that led to the, the Home Depot acquisition. I mean, you, you mentioned in your own admission, you weren't planning to sell. So how did that sort of transpire?
0: Well, it's, it's not exactly accurate to say we weren't planning to sell. We just weren't planning to sell yet. Because once you take in private equity, you better be planning to sell, because if not, you'll be pushed out. That's ultimately what has to happen but what happened was we were running a company and we were number one in the world selling blinds online and we were we were beating everybody and we were we had a very big market share so you're going to run the attention of companies who are maybe number one at other things and not in this category and they at some point they all have to say what is going on in houston how are they how are they doing this with so few people and so little um, capital investment. There's something going on there. So we started attracting uh, attracting uh, several companies who started looking at us. We had no banker, we had no book. We basically just had our our senior leadership team notes and we had some good minutes from our board meeting, and we had good decks that we were continuing to evolve. So we just went into these meetings with, here's our last board deck, here it is, look at, that. look at that. And of course, everything was looking good, the numbers speak for themselves, and it didn't look like we were trying to sell, which we weren't, and at some point they say, well, it's a make or buy, and these, these companies decided to buy.
1: How and, many how many companies were at the table at the time? You like Home Depot being the winner, but were there other folks?
0: At that time two.
1: So the total of 3 including Home Depot.
0: Yes, well two at no two at the time, it was Home Depot and one other.
1: Got it. And how do you as a CEO uh, get your sort of comfort level up to share that level of detail with a company that ultimately if they decided to make instead of buy would be your biggest competitor?
0: we were careful in how much information we were giving. We gave uh, general ranges, even on EBITDA discussions, we would say it's greater than the majority of e-commerce companies. It, it, It has improved each of the last five years and our gross margin has improved each of the last x number of years so providing general guidance was really what we needed because they could then sort of connect the dots to know that okay we know what we told them what the revenue number was so they knew the market share and knowing that profit was going up and gross margin was going up and seeing our culture especially they 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 knew that there was something special going on at the company. And we had built our own technology, a web platform, it's configurator that uh, they didn't have and no one else had. And it was, it it was um, agnostic to, to product category. It, It was for blinds or anything else. So when you talk about a big public company that was, did not have a technology that we had spent four years developing. They have to say, can we even do that? And if we can, how much will that cost and how long will it take? And they were at a point where they were thinking, okay, we want to be number one, we're number one in everything else. We've got to be number one here. So here's a company that's getting bigger and more profitable almost every quarter. So and looks like they're heading to be public. So they were looking at us and saying, how do we preempt them going public and take them now before they get too expensive? And that was what happened.
1: At this point, are they, so there, there's another player at the table. Did you get to the point of having two competing letters of intent?
0: No, uh, there was one that we've been talking to And we were very close. We were maybe one or two deal points away from that. Uh, But Home Depot liked what they saw. It was aligned with their vision. We liked the people. We liked everything about what they were saying and what they wanted us to do with our technology. And they just acted faster. They had the intent, they had the will, and the ability to strike first. And there was, of course, discussion on pricing and all that, but they were they had that intention to do it and to get it done. And it, that, that whole process, I thought, went very well because we had very uh, candid discussions on what was important to us and vice versa, what was important to them. And even the attorneys that were involved, that we all know can be blockers to transactions, w- were not. Everybody was aligned, so our attorneys were talking to their attorneys, and it was, it was, a, it was a, a beautiful thing. It really was.
1: Well, that's a first <laughs> <laughs> we've done a lot of these interviews and I, I can't say that anybody's referred to that, that kind of due diligence negotiation is a beautiful thing. I mean,
0: like what well, if I- people there and I had a, we, we could call each other anytime there was, there was never tension during those calls. It was, look, this is what we really need to make this work. Um, so we can't budge on that, but what else can you do? It was that type of, collaboration to work towards a win-win for both. And it's really hard to, to say that. Um, but it really is, is is true. The people involved at the front, he he and I could could talk and work through, I believe we work through every issue other than the highly technical things, some of the covenants and and things like that, which had to be done by the the attorneys. But even they, managed to work through everything with very little friction. I mean, there's certain things we wanted that they didn't and we couldn't get it, but almost everything else was, look, this is what we need and and we got it. We said, this is something that has to happen for this deal to work. And after trying to be creative on working around it to come up with other solutions, and we realized it couldn't, we both gave where we needed to because we both wanted it to happen.
1: What were the non-negotiables for you?
0: Cash. That was a that was important.
1: They wanted to pay in stock.
0: No, they they actually did want to pay cash. But I can't go into any other uh, deal terms. But no. That was not that was a non-negotiable because what I've heard is when you take stock or when you have earnouts and things like that. You get misaligned because of allocations that the parent or the the acquirer has, where they now start burdening your your income statement with costs that you didn't have before, and what you thought was an earnout now becomes harder to achieve because you've got another line item or two or three that you didn't have before. So it was it was important that I didn't have to have those types of worries going in. It's not just because I was greedy and wanted it. I just had spent a lot of time building this. And I felt obligated to my family and my associates that, that this be something that I didn't have to be concerned about post-merger. And all the representations, whether they be written or oral, that were made in advance, all all have worked out. It's it's this is deal, it's been three and a half years. I'm still here.
1: I was gonna say, why are you still there?
0: I'm I'm having fun. All the things that they wanted me to do, I'm doing. We're hitting plan, we're working on uh, growth initiatives that are enterprise-wide. We have access to the whole executive leadership team to bounce off ideas. They seek our ideas. We collaborate towards growth possibilities, things maybe that even stretches Home Depot out of their comfort zone. But the fact that we even have the conversation says a lot about the people there who will listen to a a podunk little company in Houston.
1: (laughs) Your words, not mine.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, and have influence. And when you feel like you've got influence and you can transform what is now a $100 billion company in some small way and maybe in one or two ways in a big way, at least big for us, uh, why would you not want to do it? I I don't want to start another company.
1: Well, I mean, the other – I mean, as you look back though – You had a $100 million company in 2012 before you invited the private equity group in. Is there any part of you that wants to go back to that independence of I mean, you still weren't a startup. I mean, you had a very successful company. I'm sure. I'm sure you had a great lifestyle. I guess the reason I'm asking the question to give you a bit of time to think about it <laughs> is, you know, there's a, probably a lot of people out there that that are sitting there saying, "I've got a great business. I'm making money. Things are getting easier. It's not as hard as it was in the olden days," uh, and they've got an offer, maybe, and they're wondering, "Should I take it and join the big company, or?" You know, is life really greener on the other side, or should I just remain independent and keep you know cashing the dividend checks? In your case, like, is there a part of you that thinks, "Oh, wow, I'd love to go back to 2011 when we were just cresting 100 million, but I own the whole thing and and I could decide what and where we went." Any
0: part of well, you that thinks first about? First of that? all, uh, the answer is uh, unequivocally no. Wow! It is uh, on a scale of one to ten, I'm at eleven for for selling the company when I did and to whom it was sold. It's been a great partnership. Everything that we set out to do, we're giving the chance to do it. And because we're a subsidiary, we have a lot of autonomy. And because our culture is so unique, they don't wanna mess that up. And they know that when big companies acquire little ones, that there are unintended consequences of things that they want to do, like compensation. Oh, no, we can't do that compensation plan because it's inconsistent with uh, other subsidiaries we bought. And once we do that, we can't do that. We'll have to do it for everybody. Well, with us, they said, we know that this the way you're paying people is part of your culture. It's part of what has made you successful. We don't want to screw that up. So they were smart enough to know that they were uh, vigilant to not mess up the formula. And they've made good on that. And every time we've had some discussions about it, I I can't recall any time where when given a proper reasonable explanation that they insisted that it had to be done a certain way, which is not to say that there weren't some decisions that we don't like, I mean, my wife makes decisions that I don't like <laughs> I'm still married and I'm happily married.
1: <laughs> so, What was it like to tell your employees?
0: It was, it was really one of the best days, uh, in my career because we had such a dedicated group that was doing so well. That being part of that and making that announcement, and by the way, I had made sure that every employee in the company had uh, stock options and that when the company was sold, every single employee uh, got cash. And that was, that's pretty cool when you can tell everybody that you're getting this and then they find out how much they're making and they're just Mm -hmm. ecstatic and, One of the things that I did was take $2,000 for each of my associates for my own money and set up a 529 account or a 401k if they didn't have it so that they could uh, think about their own future. And it was just my thank you, my personal thank you to each one of them for helping me really go far beyond any dream that i would ever had. What so amaz- it was a, a tremendous to, for us all to be there. Now, that doesn't mean that over time people didn't sense a change and have some concerns about it. And it was always, all right, now that you've sold and you've got this money, and are you going to leave? And I still get a lot of questions. Are you leaving? Are you leaving? And is what's going to change? But I'm still here three and a half. They don't still don't believe me. I'm, <laughs> I'm that it's, it's a constant question that I get. But they also see when I come into the office, I am I am just buoyed by the opportunities that we all have and to be better than what we ever believe possible. That's actually the purpose of our company is to help people become better than what they ever believe possible that's that's our stated purpose. That's number one. That's our why. And when you when that's genuine, and they know that's what I want to do with every single person, and so does our whole leadership team and the idea is to help everybody else, it's saying, okay, we've gotten better, and we're going to get better. And if you come into the, our into our office, which is it looks just like a a, a Silicon Valley startup, all the colors, the open spaces, ping pong, shuffleboard, all that. It's it—it's it, apparent that people are having fun uh, and there's a lot of pressure, but we've worked through it and we've evolved and to become better.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to end at. Jen's, Jay Steinfeld, thank you so much for joining us.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow. W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W-